it's a very exciting thing to be gathering and also to be preaching on one of my favourite topics this evening. So, I wanted to just begin by just asking, who likes packing? Okay, about two people. Who hates packing? Okay, that's a lot more. Um, yeah, I, in my household, uh, packing is not uh, considered a joy. Um, and uh, often, going away on holiday is quite stressful. But I just wanted to uh, just tell you uh, about uh, the last holiday, but one we went on. So, this is a year and a half ago. Uh, we went to Malta and... Um, this was uh, what happened on the day that we left. Um, so I generally take charge of the packing. Uh, well, uh, Kate sort of gives me things and I put it in all the bags. And uh, I got all the bags together. I remember uh, packing my own clothes, uh, putting them in my big rucksack, putting it down in my study uh, where I was still gathering other things together. I remember getting all the other suitcases. And at that point, Clara was less... Well, she was just over a year, and the amount of equipment you have to take for a one-year-old is amazing. It's about three times uh, what it is for a three-year-old. So took all her stuff, loads of suitcases, uh, bring them down by the front door, check the time. Yeah, we're bang on time uh, to go to get Gatwick at the right point uh, so it's not too stressful. So uh, I put them in the car uh, from uh, the hall, and uh, we drive off to Gatwick. We park at the long-stay parking. Um, I'm looking very pleased with myself, bang on time. And uh, I start getting all the bags out of the boot of the car. Uh, at which point I say to Kate, Kate, where's my rucksack? <laughs> and she said, which rucksack? You know, the big blue one with all my clothes in it. And she said, I can't see it. And I said, nor can I. And uh, check my watch. Yeah, definitely not time to go home. And it was at that moment that it real, I realised, the realisation came, that I had left my clothes at home. And there was no time to go in and get them. So there was me. You can imagine what I was thinking at that moment. That's right. Thank goodness it wasn't Kate's bag. <laughs> and and uh, I made my way to, uh, to Malta without any clothes at all, apart from those I was wearing. So uh, I did manage to rectify this the next day in Malta. I found the cheapest clothes shop I could find. I literally piled into a, you know, a huge bag everything I could that was uh, cheap and would at least last me for 10 days. Um, and then I remember getting back to the apartment and just showing Kate what I bought, uh, which included 10 sets of boxer shorts, all of which had the branding on them, Crazy Man. So... <laughs> So there we go. They, I, I don't still wear them, by the way, just if you're wondering. So why do I tell you that? Well, this theme of forgetting ourselves obviously was uh, somewhat uh, what was happening there. I was so preoccupied with all the other stuff, Kate's stuff, Clara's stuff, that I actually forgot about my own clothes, which I'd left in the study. And today, actually, one of the two main things that I want to share with you is that we need to learn to forget ourselves. Which might sound a bit odd. Does that sound odd? Yeah, it does sound odd. But actually, there's something really powerful in this. It doesn't actually mean the sort of ineptitude that I demonstrated on that particular occasion. I'm talking about something quite different. But forgetting ourselves is one of the main things that I want to talk about us, to us about today. And the other main thing that I want to share is this, just so you have a heads up of where we're going which is that we need to remember something, something vitally important 
And that is the cross. Today's Palm Sunday, isn't it? And uh, we've been celebrating, we've been praising God, just as all of the people that line the streets of Jerusalem did on that first Palm Sunday. But actually, you can't read that account without also looking ahead to what would come five days later. And the second thing I want to talk about tonight is the power of the cross. And when we learn to forget ourselves... And we learn to remember the cross, and I'm going to talk a lot more about what that means. They come together to produce a beautiful freedom, one that can set us free, actually, from all the things that cause us stress and anxiety, that help us look down on ourselves. And they can release us us to see ourselves as God sees us, and to live in what I'm calling in this sermon tonight, the freedom of of the cross. So that's why I'm heading. But in raising the cross, I just want to ask the question, because actually it's something I think that we all know about. Maybe this is new to you, actually, maybe that you're not very familiar with Christianity at all, but you'll soon uh, discover as you look into it that the cross is important. Many churches are even built in the shape of a cross. Christians often wear crosses on their necklaces, and we see so many songs and so many passages of the Bible and communion. They all remind us of the cross. So we know it's important, but how relevant does the cross feel to you? It can seem a bit strange, can't it, that when we normally think about uh, famous people from the past, it's their life that we remember, not their death. And yet at the centre of Christianity is the cross, Jesus dying for us. But how relevant does it feel to you in your daily life? That's the question I want to ask us tonight. How often do you actually think about the cross by which I mean emotionally engaging with it in such a way that it transforms the way you feel. It's a challenging question, isn't it? And I think for most of us, myself included, the answer is most of the time, not very much at all. In practice, we may well see the cross as the necessary gateway to becoming a Christian and so of eternal importance but not as something of an ongoing relevance and interest as we seek to live out the Christian life. That's certainly true of me sometimes. I'm sure it is of all of us. But now I want to ask us some other questions. Do you worry about how people see you? How do you feel when other people criticize you or look down on you or overlook you? How confident do you feel? How happy with yourself do you feel? Do you sometimes wish you were someone else? Now, I'm sure you agree that these questions are relevant and perhaps a little, um, a little sensitive. What happened to those nice fluffy stories I started with? Well, forgive me, but I want to begin like this because I think this is the reality of our likely answers to these questions. For most of us, we do desperately care how other people see us. We can find ourselves sometimes devastated when we think people are criticizing or looking down on us, especially if it's someone whose uh, respect or admiration we value. We often lack confidence in ourselves, and we're terrified often of being negatively compared to others. 
And this means that we often spend far too much of our lives feeling anxious, fearing failure, and wishing we were someone else. And on the occasions when perhaps we're admired or complimented or seen as successful in something, which will, of course, happen sometimes, we can even find ourselves then quickly struggling with pride instead. Am I right? Well, certainly it's true of me. So this is why this sermon matters. This is why I want to speak about this tonight. Because actually, the cross can transform your answer to every one of those questions. And can do so not just once, but every day of your life. And so the message of the cross is actually the most important thing that any of us need to hear. So I want to pray that God will really use it to help us here this evening. Whether we're exploring becoming a Christian, just finding out a little bit about what it's all about, or whether we've been living as a Christian for decades or more. My prayer is that we would discover the role that the cross can actually play in our lives and giving us that freedom every day and that peace and joy that God intends for us. So let's just pray and invite God to speak through what we're thinking about tonight and ask him to do whatever he wants to do for us this evening. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that the cross is written through the pages of our New Testaments. The cross is in so many of our songs and hymns. The cross is something that we're reminded of in so many ways, in the jewellery that we wear, in the paintings that we look at, and even in our churches as they Uh, are laid out and in the stained glass windows that we admire. Father, we just thank you that you sent Jesus to us. And I pray that tonight, Lord, you would just use your grace, the knowledge of your love shown through his death, to set us free from everything that you long to release us from. Please, Lord Jesus. Amen. So on with the sermon, and I just want to also acknowledge, um, as I have done on a, a couple of times before, uh, I won't do this every single time I preach, but um, I've mentioned Timothy Keller, haven't I, to you? One of my favorite authors. Now, what I'm sharing tonight is actually um, expanded in more detail in a wonderful little book. Uh, it's called this. It only takes an hour to read. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's free on Kindle. And uh, I think it costs peanuts um, to get uh, from Amazon as well. So if you're interested in what I'm talking about tonight, please do go and get that um, and uh, allow that just to um, help you uh, a little bit more. But it might seem a strange title. It certainly did to me when I first saw it. It sounds like it's advocating amnesia. But actually, it can change our lives. So that's the plug over But why is it so significant? Why is it so important? What's the power of this particular little book? Well, I think it's that it helps us dig beneath the teaching of the Bible, especially of the Apostle Paul. 
and highlighting what, what you might see as the underlying psychological or theological principles behind what Paul particularly shared. And that passage that we heard read is certainly an example of it. And the crux of it was that verse, verse 31, that Sarah read. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Which might leave you thinking, what a relief. I don't have a problem with boasting, so this sermon isn't about me. But actually, that's missing the point. Because boasting is simply one symptom of a deeper underlying problem, which is an unhealthy concern in what other people think about us, which can also be manifested in low self-esteem or social anxiety or moral compromise or workaholism or an obsession with popularity at school or work or in our community or our family or wherever it might be or success, whatever that means. Or to put it another way, we all have an ego, and it's our ego that is the problem. So what is our ego? It's probably a word that we've all heard of. We may not quite know what uh, we mean by it. Uh, we may associate it with Sigmund Freud. I, I studied him briefly at university, but uh, we'll, we'll just ignore him. But here's the definition that I think is commonly accepted. This is from dictionary.com. Ego is our self-esteem, our self-image, or feelings. And what Tim Keller highlights in that little book about our egos is that they are by nature empty, painful, busy, and fragile. And I just want to unpack a little bit more what I mean by that. So when I say by nature, I mean that naturally, without God transforming the situation, without him doing that time and time again. So let's unpack then what we mean by those things. How is the human ego empty? Well, the famous 19th century uh, Christian philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard, put it like this. He said, it's the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. Spiritual pride, he continued, is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And of course, if we try and put anything in the middle of that big hole, of that space, that place that was made originally for God, it's going to be too small. It's going to rattle around in there, and it isn't going to satisfy us. So our egos are by nature empty. And second, they are also painful because they're always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. People sometimes say that their feelings are hurt, don't they? But actually, our feelings can't be hurt. It's our ego that hurts, our sense of self, our sense of identity. And the reality is this happens to us all time and time again. Think how hard it is to get through a whole day at school or at work or uni or wherever it is without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves at least once. And that's because of what's wrong with our ego. It's always drawing attention to itself. And it's constantly busy trying to fill that emptiness by comparing ourselves with other people. 
Now, in his chapter on pride in mere Christianity, which you may have heard of, a book by C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories, he points out that pride is by nature competitive. And I think there is so much truth in this. So he said this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or equally clever or equally good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's interesting, isn't it? But also very insightful. And so whether we're feeling superior or inferior to others at any particular point in time, the root of the problem is the same. It's our ego is making us compare ourselves with others. And it manifests itself in us feeling either inferior or superior and proud, neither of which are good things. And both of which leave us fragile. I guess we're, we're all familiar with that word fragile. I sort of think of eggshells. My wife's been uh, uh, using eggshells, emptying the egg out of them and painting them for Easter, which uh, is rather lovely. Um, but it, it leaves us fragile as ourselves, the ego. Why? Because we're either feeling bad about ourselves at any particular time, or we're in imminent danger of feeling bad about ourselves, unless our ego is once again appeased. Now, here is a quote from Madonna to illustrate this point. And uh, these are quite well-known quotes. She's said quite a lot about this subject. And here's a picture of her on the screen. There we go. Madonna said this, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. And Tim Keller paraphrases her thoughts like this. Now I've got the verdict that I am somebody. But the next day I have to go and look somewhere else. Why? Because my ego is insatiable. It's a black hole. It doesn't matter how much I throw into it. Nothing is ever enough. And he concludes, we might be tempted to think Madonna is neurotic, but no, she simply knows herself better than we know ourselves. Or or she is simply being more honest. Does this resonate with you? It certainly does with me. Because this is the normal state of the human self. It was what lay behind the pride and the divisions in the Corinthian church. If you know anything about the background to that letter, you'll know something about that. But it actually lies behind most of the negative feelings that we experience today. What's the only remedy? The gospel, the good news about Jesus, which transformed Paul, who wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians transformed his sense of self-worth, his sense of self-regard, his identity, and meant that his ego operated in a completely different way. 
And to illustrate this, let's just do a little comparison between Paul and Madonna. That's something you probably weren't expecting. Here we go. But uh, here we go. Madonna, first of all. Humble origins, dubious early career. But then things took a dramatic turn. She had her first single hit, Holiday, in 1984. Anyone remember that? Yeah, plenty of people nodding. Her second album, Like a Virgin, went to number one of the album charts. I bought it. I didn't tell my mother, but uh, I bought it. It was fantastic. Now, what has she gone on to achieve? Well, she's sold more than 300 million records worldwide. She's recognized as the best-selling female recording artist of all time by the Guinness World of Records. She's also um, received a Globe Award for Best Actress in Evita, and she's won awards for writing children's books. Did you know that? Um, for writing uh, fashion or for make fashion design, uh, for filmmaking, and even as a business woman. So that's Madonna. What about Paul? There was a, that's the best picture we could find of him. How does anyone know what he looks like? That's what I want to know. But there we go. That's, a, that's Apostle Paul. Beards were in fashion then as well, as you can see. And uh, there's Paul. Well, his background, actually, we know about from the book of Philippians. And it tells us that his background was actually far more impressive than Madonna's. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which if you're Jewish is, is, a, is a good thing, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm quoting Philippians 3 here, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So here's the irony then of what Paul wrote in that passage today, about how not many of you were wise or influential, or of noble birth. Because he actually was. And what he went on to achieve is far more impressive. What do we know about St. Paul, the Apostle Paul? Well, he planted most of the early church. He wrote 14 books in the New Testament. This led to Christianity spreading across most of the known world. He has churches named after him all over the world, including this one, our most famous cathedral, and even a top-flight German football team. (laughs) Keller describes him as undoubtedly one of the six or seven most influential people ever to have lived. Even the so-called queen of pop cannot beat that. And yet the comparison that I'm actually interested in tonight, though, is not their achievements It's the stuff that quote from Madonna was all about. How they fill that hole, that desperate desire for significance, for affirmation, for approval, and for respect. Madonna looks to herself, to her achievements, and the things that people say about her. Things that either fail or never last. And that's from the greatest female pop star of all time. And yet Paul said in our passage tonight, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified on the cross. And in that defining sentence of our passage tonight, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what's going on here? 
something truly extraordinary, which is that Paul is not looking to his own achievements. He's not comparing himself to anyone else. In fact, he's not thinking about himself at all. And unlike Madonna, as his 14 preserved letters so compellingly tell us, he is finding the purpose, the joy, the peace, the fulfillment, the self-acceptance and the self-worth that he craves. And what is its source? It's Jesus, crucified on a cross, dying for him, dying for you and dying for me. So what does it mean for us then? It means that if we are to find the purpose, the joy, the self-acceptance, the fulfillment that we crave, we need to do likewise. We need to stop comparing ourselves with others. Stop looking at our achievements. Stop thinking about ourselves anywhere near as much as we tend to do. And instead, look to something completely different as the basis of our identity our self-worth, and as the source of love, affirmation, peace, security, fulfillment, and joy. Look to Jesus, as verse 30 of our passage tells us. He has become, for us, wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. So what does that mean? It means that if we accept for ourselves that priceless gift of Jesus dying on the cross in our place, well then when God looks at us, he sees what he sees in Jesus. His righteous, spotless, blameless, dearly loved, valued, precious child. And the key to finding peace and joy, and self-worth, is to believe this, but not just to believe it theoretically, conceptually, but to actually allow the astonishing truth of these things to sink home, mentally and emotionally, and to absorb and comprehend the fact that we are truly free. Free of the need to try and impress others. Free of the need to impress ourselves. Free of the need to compare ourselves to others. Free of the need to strive to be perfect. Free of the need to try and persuade people to love us. Free of the need to prove ourselves. Why? Because the astonishing truth of what Jesus did on the cross and confirmed by rising again was that in God's eyes, we are now perfect and deeply and passionately and wonderfully loved. As Paul in Romans 8 verse 1 so memorably tells us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. And he then concludes that chapter with these famous words, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including, by the way, anything that we ever have to deal with, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means nothing, 
that anyone can think about us, nothing that anyone can say to us, and nothing that anyone can do to us. For this is the true security, the true confidence, and true self-worth, rooted in true humility, anchored in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And C.S. Lewis describes it like this. If we were to meet a person with true gospel humility, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually um, obsessed, if you like, with themselves. Rather, the thing we would remember from meeting them would be how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself and not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility, this freedom of the cross, is not needing to think about ourselves, not needing to connect everything with ourselves. It's an end to thoughts like, you know, I'm in this room with these people. How does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. It's about no longer feeling the need for everything to be about us. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And it's the peace with God and with ourselves that only self-forgetfulness can bring. And here's a little test of whether we've got there. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It would not keep them up late. It would not bother them. Why? Because a person who's devastated by criticism is putting too much value in what other people think, on other people's opinions. Whereas a person who's self-forgetful instead takes criticism and uses it positively as an opportunity to change rather than as a devastating verdict on themselves. Let me summarize all of this then, using the analogy of a courtroom. What Paul is looking for, what Madonna is looking for, what we're all looking for, let's be honest, is an ultimate verdict that we are important and valuable We look for that ultimate verdict every day in all the situations and in all the people around us. And that means that every single day, effectively, we're on trial. And everything we we do is either providing evidence for the prosecution or for the defense. Some days it feels like we're winning the trial. Other days it feels like we're losing. But Paul says he has found the secret. The trial is over for him. He's out of the courtroom. It's gone. It's over. Why? Because the ultimate verdict is in. And that means we no longer need to do anything to impress others or to impress ourselves. Rather, we seek to live a life of love and holiness in response to God's unconditional love and acceptance which is already ours if we've accepted that gift.
So where are you at today? Maybe you're exploring faith, just finding out more about it. Well, find out more. Find out how Jesus dying for you and rising again can give you everything that you long for and everything you've ever needed. Or maybe you're in a different position. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades or even longer. But, and it's a big but, every day you find yourself being sucked back into that courtroom, worrying about what other people think about you, feeling down on yourself, or even feeling proud of yourself. Either way, what is the solution? It's to go back to the cross, to meditate on it, pray in response to it, and remind yourself of the freedom that you have. And ask yourself, what are you doing in the courtroom? We should not be there. For the court is adjourned. The verdict is in. Jesus has paid the price. We are truly loved, truly valued, truly precious, adopted children of God. And in his eyes, we're perfect. So, we're going to take an opportunity now just to respond to what we've heard. I want to suggest that we just take uh, a minute or so just to gather our thoughts. You might want to close your eyes and